All right, so Exodus 16. The entire Israelite community departed from Elim and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are going to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory, because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, before, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening quail came and covered the camp. In the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, What is it? because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. Good morning. Our next passage is Psalm 104. Psalm 104. My soul bless the Lord. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind, and making the winds his messengers flames of fire his servants. He established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. 
Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. He causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. The trees of the Lord flourish, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, storks make their homes in the pine trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for hyraxes. He made the moon to mark the festivals, the sun knows when to set. You bring darkness and it becomes night when all the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they go back and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to work and to his labor until evening. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creations, your, your creatures, sorry. Here is the sea vast and wide teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships move about, and Leviathan, which you formed to play there. All of them wait for you to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your breath, they are created and you renew the surface of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they pour out smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. May sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Libby and Derek. Let's be honest. I just wanted her to be able to read so we could listen, right? Anybody can listen to a Canadian. That's not special but an Australian? Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, grateful for them. Um, they have uh, kind of been interesting. Derek's from Canada. Libby is from Australia. They've met each other. They've lived in both places recently. They traveled back to Canada. And then here's the question I'm asking. They've decided to go back to Australia. Why would you leave the frozen tundra of Canada to go live on the... Oh, that's why. Yeah. Makes sense. So we'll miss you, but have fun back in Australia. Um, those are our texts for this morning, which you might be wondering, I thought we were in Philippians. And we are, kind of. 
But it's important for us to realize that as we're trying to deal with the four chapters of Philippians, that right here between chapters two and three, it is good for us to reflect on who God is and what he is about. That in light of the fact that we are preparing for Lent, responding to the generous gift of God who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die in our place for our sins, this generous God, it begins to help us understand why the Apostle Paul could say things like, since Jesus Christ, who was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be um, robbed, clung to, held on um, tenaciously, but instead he, he gave that up and he sacrificed himself for the glory of the Lord. And therefore, you should have that attitude as well. Well, what did Jesus Christ give up? Like, what was it? Who is this God that we are amazed by? And then last week, we heard a great message in which we were encouraged and challenged by this rather startling statement. As you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, remember, it is God that is working through you in this process, do everything without complaining or grumbling or arguing so that you, so that we might shine out like stars in a very broken world as we hold on to or hold out the word of life to others. How do you do that? And that's why we really thought it would be good at this particular moment Lent, Easter, right in the middle of Philippians. Who is this God? And I think Exodus 16 and Psalm 104 give us a really good insight into a God that we are able to celebrate and worship this morning and a God that begins to order our lives in such a way that we can begin to think of others better than ourselves because we know who God is. And we can begin to work out our salvation with a deep sense of fear and trembling, realizing that it is God who is doing this work, and we'll do that without complaining or arguing or fussing, because you want to know why? This isn't like a, I'm going to really work through this. I'm going to really kind of push through this. It's a, oh, that's who you are. And we don't spend enough time on that aspect in our spiritual walk. Our spiritual walk is not a doubling down, it's not a digging deeper within, it is a a response, a recognition of who God is. And when we see God for who he is, when we recognize who he is, I, I would argue there is a supernatural, natural response that we actually have. Oh, that's who you are. Oh, that's who I am. Oh, that's what you will do. And that's what orders our lives. There is just something, um, and I don't know if it's new, but there is just something especially uh, noticeable in our culture today that when anybody starts a conversation with you, especially if you don't know them, but even if you know them, and they're starting and they're being really, really sweet and they're really being really, really kind and they want to talk with you and they want to meet with you, I'd love to have coffee with you, what what do you begin to do? Like, do do, some walls begin to go up? And and what, what are you thinking? What do you want? What do you, what do you, what do you want? Like, I, I think there's going to be an ask here. 
I remember hearing a story about a rather famous pastor's wife from Southern California. Um, And she wasn't complaining, but she was just looking at her life and she was just kind of recognizing that I I know that I don't quite have the recognition and the responsibility that my husband has, but, but it's still hard to be a pastor's wife and it just seems like everybody's pulling at me and everybody's wanting something from me. And she was just describing in a moment, she wasn't complaining. I don't think she was complaining or arguing, but she was just admitting it's just hard. It's just hard that everybody's always tugging on something. She told a story about going into an elevator and all of a sudden she meets someone. It's just kind of one-on-one. And this person seemed to take a genuine interest in her. Hi, my name is, who are you? First, the walls began to go up. She didn't say it, but she's just, okay, what what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And, And it didn't seem to be a want. And the more that there wasn't a want, her walls began to come down, and she began to have a very engaging and interesting conversation with this person where it was like, it's so fun to just be a regular person where somebody's not demanding or begging or wanting or manipulating, and and she's just having this honest conversation with this newfound friend. She says, the conversation went on and on, they get to their floor, they get off, and the conversation just continued, and It was like a breath of fresh air. It's so nice to finally meet somebody that doesn't want anything or need anything, but just has a a genuine interest in me, kind of like for me. As they go to say goodbye, the lady reaches into her pocket and she says, by the way, I'm new in town and I'm a real estate person and I was wondering if you would. And, And honestly, the lady was kind. Okay, nice to meet you too. Ah, I think of that story a lot, especially because when sometimes we can come into church, we can just feel like this is just one more place where somebody wants something. It's not just a pastor or a church leader, but it's like him. And by the way, if you think your mom is demanding... (laughs) If you think your spouse, if you think your children have high expectations, what do you think about him? Creator of all, sustainer of all, giver of all. Like, don't you get the sense sometime that God just really wants, like, everything? And I can't help but think that as I read the text of Scripture, and I know it's complicated, I promise you, I'm very aware that and we're going to tease this out over a couple of weeks, and then we're going to see it kind of continue to flesh out through the final two chapters of the book of Philippians. I think I could say this, and it would require some working out in a sense, but I think I could make a very strong case for the fact that God doesn't want anything from you. What? I've never heard that before. I know, and I, I, I promise that it's complicated. It's not that there's not a response that comes. But I think it's important that we understand some very rudimentary foundational aspects of Scripture that kind of start us off and keep us straight. The Bible begins where there's nothing. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, my translation, there was nothing. Well, except for God. And and there was God existing perfectly, 
Father, Son, Spirit. We didn't know them as such, but God living, communing perfectly, and he is completely and utterly satisfied with himself. And there are no external compulsions in him. And yet, out of the overflow of God, in his abundant kindness and goodness, God, out of his his generosity, out of the overflow of who he is, speaks into nothing and creates literally all that is. That's, that's amazing. And, and, and part of our situation when we begin to look at God is we go, wow, isn't he brilliant? Look at the way he's ordered the universe, and he is. Isn't God powerful by the way that he has ordained the universe? He is. And isn't God sovereign? And he is. Is he not just like generous in every way, shape, or form? Does the Bible not describe a God who gives and then 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 gives? And he's just getting started. And he just continues to give and to give and to give. And this generosity just cascades down, overflows over, runs through in and around, it floods. And this is how God operates. And that's why it's important to remember that God did not create because someone made him. And he didn't create because he was missing something inside. No, that's why you and I want to create. You and I want to create for these kinds of reasons, but the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, it just kind of overflows out of his, his person, out of, out, of, out of his fullness. And God is just that full. So this, this morning, what I want us to do this morning, and by the way, that's my only slide, and I'm not sorry, is to just sit and to reflect and to receive the goodness of God. That's why it probably is more than appropriate to just have lengthy texts read over us that remind us of this illogical, nonsensical, um, surprising generosity of God that I can't put my finger on that in the end I almost want him to ask for something. I want him to to do something so that I could somehow not just always feel in his debt? Can I not contribute something? And God loves to say this a number of times. <laughs> what, what would you give to me? I want you to think about this. He says, let's think about this together. What would you give me that I haven't already created? What would you do for me to somehow satisfy a need that I have? Like, I'm fine with this, but... What is it about me that you can't just receive? Now, hear me, I'm not talking about this kind of selfish receiving. I don't know, that's our problem. But God is just this surprising, and I don't mean this in any kind of disrespect, it's, it's, more, of a, it's more of a critique of us, a nonsensical generosity that the Lord provides. Genesis chapter 12. 
You know the story. You can turn there if you want. But God says, this is kind of one of the pivotal paradigms of Scripture. We're just going to look at the big stories this morning. In this major story, God says to a man who really is a nobody-ish person, who doesn't have like a big family and he doesn't have a big name, he doesn't really have his own land, and God says, Abram, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you and I'm going to. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I am going to, and I am going to. So now let's go. And he just lists off all these amazing things that Abram is going to do. And what do you want from me, God? I want to bless you. No, but what do you want from me, God? I want to provide for you. No, but what do you want from me, God? I I want to use you so that I could bless all of my creation. I I know they're messed up, and I know that they are broken, but I choose you. What do I have in me, God? You have nothing. No, but what, what is it about me, God? You are, in a sense, nothing. I choose you out of the overflow and the abundance of my generous grace. And Abraham has to, like, deal with that. He has to believe, he has to have faith in that, that God desires to use him in a very real and powerful way, and then Abraham's life is now lived in response to a very generous and powerful God. And maybe that's how we end up in Exodus 16. Maybe we end up in Exodus 16 because it's a lot like Genesis 12. I mean, a number of years have actually passed. But in Exodus chapter 16, the descendants of Abram, which are now numerous, they are now almost numbering the stars of the sky and the sands of the, of, of, of the, of the shore. It's, it's literally, it's, it's, this is actually happening, but they still don't have a land And they find themselves under difficult circumstances. So what I love about the generosity of God is it never ignores the difficulty that we find ourselves in. God's generosity actually serves as a backdrop or um, uh, kind of creating a context to a very real brokenness that exists in the world. And in Exodus chapter 16, we see this moment where Abraham's descendants are now finding themselves between two places. They're they're literally in a desert. And they have been brought out of. God encounters Moses and he says, I've seen the misery of my people and I'm here to provide for them. I'm here to protect them. I'm here to liberate them. And he does. Not because of who they are, but because of his promise to Abram. He then pulls them out. He frees them. Hold on to these ideas and metaphors he, and their rea- historical realities for the Israelites. He pulls them up out of this land and they are now on a journey to the promised land and they find themselves, you don't have to deny reality to be a Christian, in the desert. That's hard. That's difficult. And in the desert, they find themselves Hungry. That's a reality as well. And in that moment, liberated, on the way to, they find themselves hungry and in a very, very, very not too good place. And, and, and what do they begin to do in, Acts, or in Exodus 16? They begin to complain. 
I was listening very closely to Drew's message and I loved his statement. It's odd that the Apostle Paul, in the middle of this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one working in you. Here's what you do. Are you ready? It's not feed the poor. It's not change the world. It's just don't argue and complain. Like Don't, don't let that creep into your, in, into your life. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Well, you can't deal with Philippians 2 without recognizing that what the Apostle Paul is alluding to, is drawing attention to, are the people of God somewhere between liberation and the promised land who look around and have real circumstances that are difficult, a desert and hungry, and then they absolutely forget, like utterly forget where they've come from, where they're going, who they are, and who he is. And so we complain. Paul, do you have any idea what it's like? Um, I'm in prison. <laughs> Paul, do you have any idea, like in terms of just difficult circumstances? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I've, I've, I've lived my life many times in need. And what do you do in those moments? And I really think this becomes the paradigm of reflecting on the amazing present provision out of the overflow of the generosity of who God is, is that to know who God is, is to recognize the abundance of who he is as we remember where we have come from in need of liberation, in recognition of our brokenness and, and, and our torment, our, our brokenness in terms of our relationship with God. As we remember that we're on our way to the ultimate place that God has intended. We, we will be restored. We will have a land. We will have everything that God desires. And then this is important. Is that in no, in no way does the Bible ever seem to ignore the desert. Like ever. For almost anybody. Everybody knows what the desert is. Everybody knows what hunger is. It's what do we do in those moments? There, there's a fascinating verse in our text that Derek read this morning. It's verse four, Exodus 16, verse four. It's not gonna appear on the screen, but you have it in your Bible, okay? Look at verse four. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people will go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. I'm going to provide for them bread every day as they need to see if they really do. He uses the word trust there, but that it's, it's more than just this trust. It's to see if that they will know me, that they know that I am good and that they know that I desire good for them, that they know that there is really nothing they could ever do to manipulate me to get me to send bread. In fact, and this is the part that always surprises me about the Bible, God gives bread and meat to complaining people. You know what I would do if I had a bunch of people that after I did all these things for them, all they did was whine? Wouldn't you? Has somebody ever complained about just, and you just, you are just, it crawls up the back of you. They are so, so, so unappreciative and ungrateful. And how many of you turn around and go, you know what? I'm going to do something special for you. 
I'm not kidding. I, I look at these texts and in a sense, it doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? And it's not because that God is weak. It's not because he, he, he's, he's afraid to deal with it. It's not like he's got some insecurity. It's just who he is. To complaining and arguing undeserved people, the Lord provides them with all that they need. And I guess maybe that's why we shouldn't be surprised that when Jesus is fasting, thank you for the reminder, Debbie, as Jesus is fasting, he is reminded that man does not live by bread alone. He's able to avoid temptation by realizing this bread thing, as important as it is, is actually not the point of everything. There's got to be something more here. And he's able to, in his moment of hunger, hmm, in a wilderness now that I think of it, what is he able to do? To rely on the Lord to provide for him. And not to manipulate and not to control. I, I, it's like Jesus knows where he came from, where he's going. He's very aware of his surroundings. He knows who he is. And then he remembers the goodness of his father. And he doesn't complain. And he doesn't argue. He just responds to the overwhelming goodness of his father and his father's purpose in the world. Is that not amazing? And I guess that's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 104 at great length. I, I literally, as I was kind of looking through that text this week, I literally thought to myself a number of times, oh, that's a lot of verses, 35. I think I'll just cut it off here. Well, no, I can't cut it off there. What if I started a little bit later? No, you need the beginning. And I just kept going, okay, we're doing all 35. And it's just describing like about how hyraxes are fed because that's important. Have you guys seen a hyrax? I have. Actually, at Engedi, right? We've seen these little animals and they're hiding among the rocks. And, and I could care less about them. They kind of look like weasels to me. And the Lord provides for them and has been providing for them and will continue to provide for them. And as I just walk through Psalm 104, I'm just really, really mindful of all of the things that the Lord is doing, is constantly doing, that I'm completely unaware of, completely ungrateful for, um, that I mostly don't even care about. And yet none of that causes him to waver or to move, but he out of the overflow of his goodness and his kindness, continues to be generous. And maybe that's why Psalm 104 is actually about worship. God, your deeds are amazing. And maybe that's why, if we understand Psalm 104, the great acts of God, in all of the little tiny things like with hyraxes and you know easy things that you and I could do, like make the sun rise and set, and, and feed all the animals of the earth. That maybe if we were to just sit in the wonder of that, we wouldn't have time to complain because we would too be, be too busy responding with worship. That in the end, we, we really would know how to deal with, and they're real. Like I love the fact that the Bible speaks honestly about deserts and hunger. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the desert and hungry. But as Drew pointed out, 
but he never complained. Why? Because he knew where he was coming from, where he was going, who he was, and who his father was. And that is why this morning, I, I pray, my, my prayer this whole week has been that we would just do a good job sitting and maybe for the first time, maybe for the only time this week, just to receive. No hidden ask. That, that God, in the fullness of who he is, is here to love you and to care for you to make himself known to you through Exodus 16 and Psalm 104, through the breaking of bread to the, the spilling of wine, to be reminded that God is exceedingly generous and deeply desires to provide for your every need. Well, what do you want? <laughs> like there's, there's nothing I want the way that you use the word want. There is nothing I need in the way that you use that word need. I am here completely self-sustaining, operating, satisfied to just give to you this morning. I, I think that's how the Apostle Paul learns to function in his desert and to function when he's hungry, just remembering constantly the goodness and the greatness of God. And by the way, it's easy for us maybe to think about the goodness and the greatness of God and his generosity when we think about God and all the wonderful things that he gives. And anybody have more than they need? Raise your hand if you have more than you need, right? We're all raising our hands. Why does he do that? Like, I get the blessing of Abraham. I don't get why he blessed Pharaoh. I don't get Nebuchadnezzar. I don't get Ahab. I don't get Manasseh. I get David, kind of. I, I don't understand why God operates. Jesus points this out in the Sermon on the Mount, right around the time where he talks about you need to ask the Lord to provide for you daily bread. He actually says in the section just previous to that, that what you need to do as you reflect on the greatness of God is what you need to do is you need to realize that God um, gives rain to the just and the unjust. That God just doesn't take care of those people that he is necessarily in favor with, but the overflow of the generosity of God goes to surprising places. And you should be like that. And by the way, when we are like that, we don't complain or argue. You know what we find ourselves doing? Praying for those who persecute us, loving our enemies. How do you do that? Do, do you know the connection actually between complaining and arguing and enemies? And It's remembering where we've come from, remembering where we're going, being honest about the desert that we're in and the hunger that we feel, but knowing that we are children of God and believing, trusting he will provide in this moment. And there is no better way to understand that than this. I'm a little concerned about this. Please do not get a sense that this is in any way a transition or a segue. 
It kind of feels like that. And I know it. There's no way else to do it. We have to transition to get our cups and all that stuff, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that, like, do you understand that there's no way for anyone to speak about the generosity and the overflow and the kindness and the goodness of God without thinking of Jesus and without thinking about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did? That there's absolutely no way for us to celebrate and trust him without thinking about Jesus. That there's absolutely no way for us to get a, the truest sense of the God is generous statement without realizing that the perfect representation of God is Jesus Christ and this is who he is. And then we come to this moment where Jesus Christ doesn't just give bread and he doesn't just give something to drink. He gives fully of himself. He says to his disciples, I have something for you. It is me. And I want to give this to you. And he breaks off a piece. And, and you can imagine, what do you want from us? Do you understand like this meal is, is just gift? I'm not saying that there won't be a response. But this comes to us as a free gift of God's grace and kindness, the overflow of his love towards us, and it is for us to receive joyfully, freely. Maybe that's why in the Sermon on the Bread of Life in John 6, he says, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. You think Moses was the one providing for you? No, that was me. Oh, the generous nature of God who gives to each and every one of us freely. Let's take that gift and eat. His blood given to us, not because we deserve it, not because of anything within us, but from the overflow of who he is, let us receive. God is as generous as the cross. And now you and I get to sit, and this is the beauty of it, respond to that gift. Respond to the free gift of Jesus Christ to us. Not because of anything from ourselves, but because God chooses out of his love for us to free us, to bring us home. And may we learn to trust him as we reflect on who he is. And I know of almost no better way to do that than in song. And so as we sing these words to him, may we reflect on the overwhelming goodness and generosity of our God. Amen, church? Let's do that together now.